Hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from the Junior Faculty Work Group at Yale Pediatrics. My name is Kathleen Corbin, and I'm a pediatric rheumatologist and assistant professor in pediatrics. And my name is Anthony Porto. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist, associate professor of pediatrics, and a vice chair for ambulatory operations. Today, we are joined by Thomas Carpenter, who is a professor in pediatric endocrinology, and among his many roles in the department, he is also the chair of the Committee for Appointments and Promotions. Here are our objectives for this session. By the end of this session, we hope that listeners will be able to, number one, recognize the timeline and major tracks for promotions in the Department of Pediatrics. Number two, understand the role of the Department Appointments and Promotions Committee in helping junior faculty prepare for promotion. And third, know the general expectations for promotion and the resources available to navigate the promotions process. So let's get started. Welcome, Tom. Our podcasts are geared towards pediatric junior faculty at the instructor and assistant professor level, and there's often little preparation or understanding of the promotions process prior to starting on the job for new faculty. Um, What advice do you have for junior faculty who feel overwhelmed by this process? First, don't become overwhelmed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's, It's something that if you get a plan in place and just keep it mindful in your mind as to how the as time progresses that it will have a natural course um, I think that where people get into trouble is when they don't ever think about it or have never familiarized themselves with the with the rules and then at a deadline they attempt to um, master the entire process in a in a too abbreviated period of time um, so at your initial appointment, you should be aware of what the rules are. Basically, we're talking about applying a set of university rules to a, a way of recognizing people's advancement in career and moving uh, along in, in that respect. And um, as with everything else, you, you have to play by the rules. Some of the complications are that the rules sometimes change and we're in the process of one of those in the middle of one of those changes right now Um, but uh, think of it kind of like reading the inside box of the Monopoly game before you get started (laughs) (laughs) that's great I mean in terms of right now what is the current landscape in terms of the available uh, academic tracks and what are the major differences between these tracks right so um, I'll talk about this in terms of the immediate present. Um, However, that will change slightly after the new academic year starts, and I'll try to give a little bit of historical perspective about how these tracks came to be. So the, the track that a generation ago was the only track uh, that has been decreasingly used in the clinical departments to the point where rarely do people uh, enter this track is what's called the traditional track. And that's uh, got a very tight clock, and it does not recognize clinical activity as a criterion for promotion. Um, It is also called the tenure track because it is the only track that technically offers traditional tenure. Now, and that gets into the definition of what tenure is, and tenure may not mean what it did a generation ago either. It guarantees that you are assured a faculty position um, throughout <clears throat> the rest of your working life. Um, however, the salary that's attached to that is a base level, which is um, actually quite small compared to what the salaries are. So I, I can't give you the exact numbers, but it because of that, it's I think would be considered a, a, a less meaningful um, consideration than it, than it had been, say, a generation ago. So then the next track that, that got established um, some 20, 25 years ago is the clinician scholar track. And many of the people in the department and across the medical school that 
um, wish to have their research, be it clinical research, be it laboratory research, um, activities considered as a major um, uh, activity for their career identity and thus establishing the criteria for their promotion uh, would, would generally enter this track. In con- that's also true in the traditional track, but in contrast to the traditional track, you're given credit for your clinical activities. And at a time when um, that was increasingly important, this track was established so that some portion of um, your materials that would be evaluated for promotion would take into account your reputation or the quality of clinical care you provided. So it became known as the clinician scholar track. And um, it's probably the home now of most of the faculty that split their time between research, be it laboratory-based or clinical, um, and some degree of clinical activity. And that that amount can vary. In some people, it's 20% or 10%. In some people, it's 50%. It's expected that one brings in grant dollars or contract dollars that pays for that research on that track. Then more recently, uh, more like 10 or 15 years ago, um, it was evident that a lot of faculty were more dominant clinicians and teachers than the phenotype of the clinician scholar track was laid out for. And that then generated the third track, which exists uh, among the three main ones we use, the clinician educator track. And this track uh, also has requirements for scholarly activity. There um, are people in this track that also get grants and their degree of clinical Um, commitment varies, but um, in order to advance through the ranks to associate and full professor in this track, one is expected to uh, garner a national, international recognition eventually and to support their own uh, research or educational activities. For many years, this track took a different shape amongst different departments, so the criteria for um, advancement was somewhat more amorphous than was the case or is the case in the clinician, scholar, and traditional tracks where it's expected a certain number of papers are published and the reputation of the journals is considered, etc. Here, a broader uh, vision was uh, instituted where uh, other types of scholarly product were um, were considered valuable and and would count as means of scholarly uh, activity product that would uh, you know generate enthusiasm for recognition and and advancement. Um, for example, people have established curricula that they've used across different medical schools, um, have um, established consortia across various medical schools for data gathering or quality improvement projects. Um, some have um, uh, used the web to uh, put educational programs forth um, under various uh, educational websites. Um, activity that's considered major activity within national societies has been valued in this in this track. And I'd say. 10 or 15 years ago, and and this language has sort of dropped, but people used to talk about um, whether people would be big C, little e clinician educators or little c, big E clinician educators. And that was referring to people that might have had only 10 or 15 percent clinical time, but organized a lot of the courses either here at Yale or uh, wrote curricula that were used across the you know, across their specialty in the uh, uh, in the whole medical school milieu out there. Um, and then there were people, say, in the Department of Surgery who were very valuable to the par- department and spent a lot of time in the operating room and, and were 
extremely talented technically, um, they became um, um, the big C, little e phenotype. Um, what has happened is that over time it's been so uh, variable in terms of the criteria for a um, promotion in this track that there's been an attempt to standardize it with um, a, a harder fix of, of defining the scholarly activity. So it's made it harder for the pure clinician to advance. So um, a number of people have stayed at certain ranks in the clinician educator track for a long time because of these less uh, crystal clear uh, uh, thresholds that one is expected to attain to to move forward. Um, so those are the the current tracks. There's there's one other track not used much in the clinical departments, but should be mentioned because it, there are people in our department on this track that is called the investigator track. And this track does not give any credit for um, uh, um, clinical work. It is often the track that PhDs in clinical departments are on. Um, they are people that uh, are in a laboratory that uh, are critical elements of um, projects going on but may not be the principal investigator of all of their projects and thus may not be fully supporting themselves as their own as, as an independent PI for most of their projects but are listed on other grants as important um, key personnel um, and might have one grant on their own. Um, it's also a place for people that do service in um, in specialties like uh, uh, radiology, where where a high degree of um, clinical service is provided by maintaining and calibrating and and keeping the um, MRI machines running, for instance, and some people are in charge of. Uh, all the protocols for this and establishing new ones. And that's not patient, direct patient interaction. It's more interaction with the devices that are used on patients and and patients that have service time in that regard that make up a significant portion of their effort uh, in addition to the research component often end up on the investigator track. It gives the non-clinician a mechanism to be in a track that is not as... Um, stringent in terms of moving forward is the traditional track. Um, but that's little used in our department. Now, what is coming um, is a, uh, well, I, I guess I should back up and say uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about the clocks within these tracks. Um, so in the traditional track, one is given... Um, I believe it's um, uh, 10 years total of time in rank as assistant or associate professor before achieving tenure. Tenure is given at the associate professor level before promotion to professor. And if you do not achieve um, a tenured slot at uh, the given uh, clock point, you... Um, you have you you lose your appointment, so it's an it's an up or out phenomenon, um, and that has uh, you know obviously been um, threatening enough, say to people that have uh, um, family established and careers and moves and a lot of stability issues that the risk of that has uh, um, been more stringent than what many people uh, um, have have elected to do. The clinician scholar track uh, has a clock, but it it goes into place at a different time. Um, it's at a more junior position. So currently, when a faculty member enters, they um, do not declare a track. At the assistant professor level, you're given a three-year appointment, undifferentiated. At the at, after three years, you usually are reappointed for a second three-year appointment, and 
at the end of the two, three-year terms, so after six years, you can then either stay as an assistant professor and and declare a track. You 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 would have to declare a track, or you you might move on up to a, a associate professor level. Um, and most of our faculty have chosen to move up in the clinician scholar or clinician educator track. Now, if you have designs to enter the clinician scholar track, you have to be able to make the associate professor after those six years. If, if not, you, you have not been able to enter that track. So there's a, a clock at that, but it's not the severe up or out. There are other avenues based on one's activities that, that you can do. Um, there's never been a clock to date in the clinician educator track. You can stay, you would then, if you did not, if you were one with anticipated directions in the clinician educator track, you would then, after those six years, enter the clinician educator track, either as an assistant or associate professor, and um, you would be uh, um, reviewed after that term for promotion, and you can either be reappointed or promoted and um, the decision as to whether you're reappointed at the same rank or promoted to a higher rank does not um, influence whether you can stay at the university or not. So, so it's it's had essentially no clock, um, and and part of the rationale for all of this in those uh, historically has been that when people have come, it's not quite clear what they. Have wanted to do. It's thought that the first six years would be undifferentiated. People can get the layout of the land, see what they, what activities they want to do. But after those six years, it should be pretty clear what they want to do, and then you've kind of made your decision in in what realm you want to you want to make it. And um, and it's been very hard to change those tracks. It, it, it's quite you know it's quite difficult to do that. So that sort of begs the issue of what happens next. And as time has gone along uh, over the past five to ten years uh, with expansion of clinical activities and a, uh, um, uh, an impetus to hire faculty that have um, increasing commitments to their clinical effort, um, the question of whether the criteria for advancing in the clinical educator track have have created a, a, a you know an inherent problem with that with that model so what um, was designated uh, several years ago was a non faculty appointment called a clinician and these clinicians were employees of the university they did not get quite the same benefits as faculty there was no um, there was no rank of professor, assistant, or associate professor um, that was part of that. Um, it was a basically a, a contracted salary job with the university to provide clinical work. There was no obligation to do anything that we would traditionally think of those um, academic uh, activities that generate the scholarly activity that are required for promotion in the all the tracks we've we've described, and some people actually like that because it takes a monkey off their back in terms of doing things that they really haven't wanted to do, um, and some people feeling that they've just had to go through motions to come up with something that um, fits the monopoly rule book uh, to move ahead, and and some of it has you know maybe not have been particularly meaningful to them, um, so they made decisions to go clinician, but sacrificing um, the title, essentially, and some of the benefits that, that go along with that. So over the past couple of years, there's been the recognition that there's a tremendous contribution of clinicians to the um, medical school. And some people are, are quite talented and nationally and internationally recognized for their expertise in the care of of, of various either disorders or age groups or whatever. And it just didn't seem fair that 
people of uh, of that level of renown um, could not be able to utilize the Yale professor title. So this has led to the establishment of a new track, which will be called the clinician track. And that track will go into operation as of July 1 of this year. Um, Similarly to the clinician uh, designation that has preceded it, there will not be requirements for promotion. There will be no clock, but it will have the titles of assistant, associate, and full professor. Um, The clinician track will allow people to uh, uh, get the respect for uh, their contributions and be able to uh, move up uh, on a faculty ladder with equivalent benefits of people on the other tracks um, in a way that we think it's uh, more appropriate. Um, We think it will assist in retaining faculty that would generally get the title at another university. It's been a kind of a Yale peculiarity to have this thing called clinician where you you didn't get the um, uh, professor titles. So I I think it's an important, uh, you know, an important move. Um, What's not clear yet, however, is exactly what metrics will be required to move from assistant professor to associate and from associate to full professor. What comes down from the university, as is true for all of their, uh, uh, from the, you know, the, the Yale Corporation for every department everywhere in the university, is that this issue of recognition will be probably central to that. So that um, however it is established will be, will be established as, the, as, as we hear more from the committee that's designing this track. But um, the likelihood is that there will be, uh, need to be some way of either getting letters or uh, some um, measure of um, one's widespread reputation clinically, be it number of referrals, be it uh, um, the reach of, your, of the referrals that come in, et cetera, to get some metric to establish that you've gained that that level of, of recognition. Um, but obviously, this is a very difficult uh, area, and it's sort of shifting that amorphous nature of criteria from the clinician educator track to this clinician track. But we will hear more details about those metrics as that, cl- as that track is established and is running. Uh, um, it's it's uh, not you know, nailed yet. Now, when that track is established, it then is likely to influence some of the issues on the clinician educator track. And uh, what we expect is that now that there's a home for clinicians, that the clinician educator track will become less amorphous and it will be, uh, there'll be more stringent criteria for promotion in that track looking for um, scholarly product, as we described earlier, such as curricular development, uh, web-based activities, etc. So that's one change in the clinician educator track. The second change is that there will likely be an implementation of a clock of some sort, but it's not clear how that will work at all yet. It might be nine years at assistant before you have to be an associate. It might be... Um, it, it might allow for everyone, uh, for, for that clock to start only with people that are n- only now entering clinician educator track. Those are some ideas I've heard, but I don't think any of this has really been decided yet. Do you think it will change when a faculty is starts at Yale, whether they'll be still undeclared or will they have to declare their track when they start? Right. So the new model is with this vast array of choices and with people having generally a better idea of what they're headed for and what they want to do at the time they start, as these new tracks begin, it's going to be expected with all new appointments that they declare a track upon uh, arrival at the university. And 
And that being said, the idea at the same time, because of that early commitment, is to relax the restraints on moving from track to track later so that although you're a brand new assistant professor, you come in on clinician educator track, you get involved in some project with Gene Shapiro and you're you know running around doing all this clinical research and you write a grant and you get funded and you, you're kind of thinking you want to spend 75% of your time doing research, then you might shift to clinician scholar track, which you know, after five years, which will be much easier to do than um, the current, what happens in the current model. And for the faculty you've been here for in their first or second term here who are undeclared now, will they, once the metrics are announced, be asked to choose a track? I, I have a feeling it will be grandfathered in. I don't think that's actually been decided yet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you so much for that overview. I think that helps clarify um, a lot of questions that um, that we've gotten about um, the different tracks. Um, I think most of our listeners are at least currently in the clinician educator track or plan to be. Um, and so um, could you walk us through, again, currently um, what the promotion process is for um, a new or first-time instructor or assistant professor level um, at the clinician educator track. Right. So I would suggest just to get out there before I I forget to say it, when you're hired, look at the Yale model CV and look at the supplementary activities, um, the CV, what's called a CV supplement in the uh, promotion and uh, appointment and promotions materials and structure that immediately and just keep it as a running file on your computer. And I'd say every six months, update it. Because what happens generally is people don't even make this up until they're asked to provide it a month before the um, deadline of their uh, review, which is a year before the appointment, actually. And um, and then they're scrambling around, and it and it isn't complete and it's, uh, you know, for the people that l- are trying to look at lots of these in a, in a manner that's uh, fairly rote after a while, uh, they depend on a certain organization. And if, it, if it's difficult to, to look through, people, you know, begin to think they can't follow instructions and all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. so I think it's very important to get that up and running and to just keep a running file on your computer Update it when you get a publication. Update it when uh, an award is made. Up, you know, just keep uh, if your efforts switch. Just constantly have that ready, um, and even ask uh, your section chief or um, the faculty development committee to review it because I think that that would solve a lot of the crunch issues that that come up. So. So that being said, um, the usual process is you have your original appointment, and that's for three years as an assistant professor. And at the end of year two, you would be asked to submit this paperwork generally for reappointment for a year from the time you're being asked because the whole the department has to look at this, a committee has to review it, and if there's um, a, uh, if it's, say, a time for promotion, then then there has to be a request for letters, and all of that takes a long time to request them, to get them back, to get through the departmental committee, to get through the senior faculty vote, which is the next thing that happens, and then to get through the medical school committee. All of that takes a long time. So that's why this has to start early. So your your materials are generally requested in May, June of, of uh, let, let's say you, you're coming up f- for the end of your uh, appointment in 2019. So in the next month or two, you will be asked to submit the papers that will be reviewed over the year to have you officially reappointed by the time that date starts in June 19. And what will happen is um, the department administrator for this will go over all of the materials, make sure they're complete, uh, maybe go back and forth with you to make sure that it's to the correct format, 
um, looks for any holes in it. And then after a handful of these are in, say the first four or five that come in, uh, a meeting is scheduled in the committee that that I work with. And um, the first usually four or five are um, discussed in a meeting as to um, the merits for promotion, the merits for reappointment, how the person's doing, what kind of um, faculty development materials have come to us to try to understand what the person had been told when they met with the committee. And these generate an impression as to whether uh, um, a reappointment or promotion is is indicated. And another sort of moving target is at the first level of reappointment, uh, we haven't uh, necessarily had to get letters, but at at many stages of reappointment at different ranks, we've had to even get letters for reappointment, which is another major thing. That's that some of that's going to change in the in the future, so that uh, promotion for uh, letters for um, promotion will be the primary place where we have to do for that, and hopefully that will make some of this a little more efficient. But all of these are university regulations that are on that you know inside of the monopoly box, and we all have to play by them, or else it could be considered invalid. So uh, um, after, after that decision, let's say it's at a juncture where you have to get letters, then uh, uh, the committee makes the decision as to whether this person sh- should go forth requesting letters for either A, reappointment, or promotion. And the, the materials that accompany the request for letters are expected to be very up-to-date because oftentimes we're asking for letters from people who may not know you and they're going to assess the paperwork. And so having that look as, as strong as possible is you know, much to your advantage. So that's why this emphasis on having the paperwork in, in place is good. There are two types of letters. There are what's called arm's length and non-arm's length letters. And there's a chart that you can pull up. I believe it's in the faculty handbook. All, all of the description of the tracks, by the way, can be accessed on the web through the Yale Faculty Handbook. You have to go to the medical school section. Each chapter is a different school, and if you go to the medical school section, you can see the tracks specific to the medical school. And um, also there are uh, attachments that give you the instructions as to these letters. But you have to get so many, depending on the stage and the rank and the track, um, there are so many uh, in-house letters, so many arm's-length letters, which are people that don't really uh, know much about you. And then there are non-arm's-length letters who might have been your fellowship mentor or somebody you collaborate with. And, and a mix of these is required in various ways for different steps in the process and, and different ranks. And so the request goes out with your materials and a non-arm's length guy who might be the chair of some other department or some high-powered guy that people are going to listen to um, as a great judge of these things is going to say, wow, this is a messy CV or, you know, there's, I can't tell if this is really a publication or, you know, um, it says submitted, but we asked only for in-press papers, you know, and such. So, so all of that it's going to influence the nature of the letter. And so we, we often go over the CVs in the committee and ask that if we see things, ask that they be tightened up, ask any any award that we've heard about gets on there for grants, making sure that uh, if it didn't get funded and it was a good score to make sure the score gets in there, things that things that can strengthen the particularly the non-arm's length person, the, arm, uh, the arm's length person. The non-arm's length letters are are usually kind of handpicked by people you know, and you can you can suge- you will end up suggesting some, but some the school selects based on your area of expertise or you know field, and um, and so you don't know who is going to be asked, but the non arms length one are are um, are the ones that are often the the easiest and, and the most glowing, but because of that, a lot of people pay the most attention to the arm's length ones. So when the letters come back in, which is often, you know, that, that, that 
decision to go for letters is often finished for most of the candidates by October, November of, of uh, the preceding year. The requests for letters go out. People take a couple of months to do this, so it's usually February, March by the time the letters start coming in. The committee has to meet again and review the letters and make a decision as to whether with the letters in place, um, the package is strong enough to present to the department. And all this is by the university rules. So we then have to uh, make decisions on everybody again and then present the candidates to the senior faculty and ask for a department vote. And the department vote actually goes with all the letters, the CV, the CV supplement, your papers and such, across to the medical school, where they have yet another committee who uh, is comprised of people from, there's, there's two committees. There's one that will look at uh, movement from assistant to associate and a different committee that looks at movement from associate to full professor across all the departments. And um, thus the committee is comprised of people from all the school. And some of them, are, you know, are, are pretty tough. And so, um, so y you want to have as strong a, a showing there. And, and those are assigned a primary and a secondary reviewer. And usually this is now happening in April, May, June. And the uh, chairman of the department goes to the committee to present uh, a, a over and above what's in the review materials uh, to the committee, and that committee votes. And that's really where the you know, major final decision is. So that is a year-long process, believe it or not. Do you get updated through that process as you know, you submit your stuff a year before as, as that process is moving forward? Is there update? Are there updates? That D you does can the request? candidate is the yes. candidate updated? Uh, yeah, usually, uh, you know, usually uh, after each meeting, the primary uh, each meeting of of the departmental A and P committee, which is our committee, uh, the person who is the primary reviewer will make a time to speak with the candidate. Say, you know, well, we discussed you. You're going out for letters or or if there's not a good relationship or a, even a known entity there, then that might happen through the section chief. The sec either the candidate or the section chief is notified, and the section chief can then, um, in some cases, uh, um, um, communicate you know where things are to the to the candidate. And then, usually after a um, uh, a meeting after the letters, um, people are told again what's going on, and and you know, you know, all we're saying is, well, it's the next step. It's the next step. Which mo most, if if people are even selected at the beginning, it's usually it's usually pretty. Um, you know, we kind of know where things are going to go, and so we we try not to make errors of pushing people down the road that we think it's going to fail at the end. You know, think of what you've done to that person. You've had to ask a bunch of major people in the field to write a letter, and if it flops, then you've got to ask them to do it again in a year, and people will get irritated. What's this person's damaged goods, you know? So so we really try to protect the candidates from um, having to fall into that trap. And so I think we're pretty good about selecting who will successfully you know, meet all the hurdles and, and also trying to identify for those that we think should be reappointed rather than promoted, um, giving them the feedback as to, you know, what, what's what would be necessary to move forward. And you mentioned the Faculty Development Committee. How does that differ from appointments and promotion? And, and give us more information on those two different committees. Yeah. Now, I, I've never actually ever sat in on the Faculty Development Committee meetings, but I do see the letters they produce, and they are generally meeting with um, candidates the year before they have to submit the materials. So they're trying to keep – the idea is to try to keep people on track and pursuing the appropriate uh, goals that will provide the, the, the milestones and criteria that would, that would allow for them to – 
you know, to move ahead and to give them feedback on, on what they're doing more in real time than at, than at these punctuated moments that the AMP committee does. So what the AMP committee does is, is look at that, but look at it as what's happened over the previous entire term because it's, we're kind of looking at each person at those dedicated intervals. Whereas the Faculty Development Committee is, is interested in the same thing, but trying to do this in a, a priori way to, to preempt um, wrong moves and to try to give advice as to what direction people should be in to be ready for the juncture that we will see them at. So they're, they're kind of the front end and the back end of the same thing. There are, you said there's information from the faculty handbook about the different tracks. Are there certain things, like a list of something that a fa- junior faculty, when they come in or when they're negotiating their job, to say, well, look, I think I'm more the CE track or I think I'm more the clinician scholar track or there are certain conversations they should be having or to help guide them? Yeah. So for junior faculty to this point, it hasn't been that much of an issue because the track is undeclared. But that will probably become more of an issue um, in the new system where it's expected that people declare a track at the outset. Um, That differs when a person is coming from a different place at a higher rank where a track has to be established. Uh, If you're bringing in somebody in an associate professor rank, they've got to have a track. You can't can't do it otherwise. So, So we actually have long conversations um, with them about, and, and this is more through the recruiting elements, through usually the, the chair, that um, uh, finding the home for the track is, is discussed. And, and we actually review those people, even though we don't know them at all. We get their paperwork in the Yale format. We go through what their record is and what their expected activities are here. And we discuss that as to what we think the optimal track would be, and we we find people that it's hard to that it's hard to decide that they could actually fall right on the fence between, say, clinician educator and clinician scholar. Um, and I think as the new tracks develop, we may find people that are on the fence between clinician educator and clinician track. So that that will um, be more of an issue as we move forward for the. Um, you know, most junior faculty. So um, there are several processes in place um, to help junior faculty think about their career, um, maybe trajectory and their career progress. Um, Things that have been mentioned to us before are meeting with your section chief, meeting with the appointment and promotions committee. Um, So um, how would you suggest or at what time points should people be trying to plan meeting with, for example, their section chief or even their personal mentor or the faculty development committee, sort of at what stages? Well, I think, you know, I think it's very dependent on, I'm not sure there's a set rule for that. I think in general, that should happen within the first six months that a person is here just to make sure the start is taking off. And probably twice within the first year. And then um, I think uh, it should be an active part of mentoring. So whenever the questions come up, a mentor should be available for that. But I think formalizing it uh, after the first year, an annual formal consideration of doing that is, is not a bad idea. I think it varies a lot because there's so many different types of people around, I think it becomes almost a, a personality-based thing. If, if people are very communicative and are very hands-on mentors, it, it, it may never have to be formal. And there might be people that are more hands-off, and that would require, and you know, I think, structuring that maybe twice in the first year and once a year um, meeting. I, I, think, uh, I think the Faculty Development Committee sets their first meeting up, um, say, in a three-year appointment in year two. So that's a reasonable, you know, that's a reasonable um, uh, piece. And, and, you know, 
it, it also is a personality thing as to who you go to for the most information. Some people have a um, great relationship with their section chiefs, and that might be their primary mentor. Some people might have mentors apart from their section chief that they actually work more closely with and feel that um, for what they're doing, they'll get better advice. So, you know, I think it has to be highly individualized. Um, so to sort of change topics a little bit, um, there's been tremendous recognition and improvement in gender differences in the faculty with respect to um, particularly promotion. Um, but there is still a long way um, to go. So um, what do you feel are barriers facing female faculty when it comes to promotion? Yeah, this is a, a great question and, and one that that has a you know, a multitude of, of answers or at least responses. Some are not actually true answers. But um, some, there are, there, there are various things that have been put in place historically to, to try to, you know, recognize that um, sometimes the traje- traje- trajectory is a little different. Um, for instance, um, traditionally there's been a... a in, an interruption of the clock to either tenure or terms to how many how many years it takes to become um, an associate professor and clinical scholar, for instance, um, and it, you, you know that person is expected to produce these um, scholarly products or number of papers or however you want to do it in a in a given term. But if if a third of that term is around the events of uh, pregnancy and a very small child and a pregnancy leave, then there's a significant disadvantage. So, so that's the origin of the, of the interruption of clock for that. But I, I, think, I think in some cases that in itself, uh, that alone is, is perhaps not adequate. Um, there's all kinds of uh, pieces to this that I, I think one could uh, – uh, try to better recognize. One thing that's currently in front of the administration right now is expanding the concept of parental leave to be able to allow, um, say, both spouses, if in the event of a newborn child or a new child in the family, to allow both to be able to participate in that benefit and to take that leave and both to have the advantage of of having the um, uh, um, clock interrupted. Right now, only one, one can, even though both might work for Yale. So, so that's one example of something that might you know, come down the line as, a, as a, a better measure for that. I think it's something that the old institutions are learning because it, it's... It, even though we don't see it in real time as as realistic, historically the pipeline has evolved so that it's it's now coming to the point where there's really, and particularly in our department where we're kind of a leader in this, there's a, a significant proportion of women in the department. And historically for the medical school, there hasn't been. And with more women entering medicine so many years ago and many going into pediatrics, we've kind of led that transition. So now everybody's getting to the point where they're at at the level where these are significant issues. And and it used to be maybe there was one or two women in the department years ago, and so uh, nobody paid any attention to it. And now it's it's clear that these are major issues that have to be addressed and uh, um as the pipeline has become increasingly female, the problems are, are just now sort of at the doorstep. And, and I, I think they're trying to figure other issues out too, but I, uh, I think the leave issue is, 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 is sort of a, a big one. Um, I think there could be even more creative things one might do with the clocks and, uh, and how you account for the leaves and, and so forth that, that could be useful. Um, those are sort of above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs>
Sure. And one, um, so a related question is um, the way that some, both male and female, obviously, um, faculty members choose to deal with family obligations is to maybe not work full time. So I can speak personally, I'm a part time faculty member. Mm-hmm. Um, what, how does the promotion clock differ um, for us? Yeah, um, I believe that there is an, an equation. We, we, we don't have too many examples of that, and, and it hasn't been something we've systematically managed, but we've looked at, um, you know, we, we see people that are 0.8 a lot, and uh, we've looked at that. I don't know if there's actually a formal mechanism for accounting for it, but that's a, a, a great point in terms of uh, uh, a way to... Uh, uh, deal with this when it gets down to something that's that's fifty percent. I think there have been uh, you know clear stretches of uh, of formulaically saying you get twice as long. Um, but uh, what happens is is this inter you know this in between um, you know this in between part. The other the other thing that not so much related to appointment and promotions directly, but it impinges upon it. Say if you're you're in the clinician educator track and you have 25% time to develop your scholarly activity and the 75% clinical time is very busy. So um, somebody in your section goes on sabbatical and there are patients that need to be covered or some, you know, some... uh, um, necessary clinical function that is left to the remaining group and you get assigned and it eats into your 25 percent and I mean this this is a problem that happens over and over again so it, it it's expected that you need to be a good citizen and not leave the patients behind and chip in and do this but then three years later it comes up that well you haven't done this because uh, you know you, you can't you, you can't get promoted you didn't you know you didn't do these things well, but I covered for all of these people that were at higher ranks than me and could take sabbatical and took off, and I didn't get a chance. You know, I wasn't compensated for that, and I, and I couldn't, uh, you know, and I, I, I was, it was expected that I do it. So that, too, is an issue in front of the administration right now because it, it sets up a system by which uh, the the rules are, are not really reflecting what's truly going on, and and so I think those are uh, things that a lot of people have become very um, and and rightly so very um, upset about. So, well, this has been this has been a great discussion. Um, is there anything else that you think that the listeners should know before we close? Um, if they've got any major uh, questions about any of this, I'm happy to have them uh, email me or drop by the office and, you know, uh, hash it out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure with all this information or, or, you shared. Or as we started, as we started at a, as we started this afternoon on a Friday afternoon, we can sit around and. Uh, do it over a drink at, uh, <laughs> at the ordinary. <laughs> That's great. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for coming on a Friday afternoon to, uh, to give us all this great information. A pleasure.